You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, D'Souza, Bigbeard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we left William Kidd in London, still hoping for a job with the Royal Navy. He didn't yet know it, but his dream was dashed already. The King and the Secretary of War had denied his application. But there were still two very important men working to get Kid a command. I was going to say that they were helping him out, but that's really not accurate. Richard Livingston, a very rich New York merchant, and the Earl of Belmont were not William Kidd's friends. They very much had an interest in getting William Kidd a better ship than he had and securing a privateering commission to hunt pirates down. And that might sound like they were in his corner, but they weren't. To them, William Kidd was just a pawn. In part, he was an investment, someone that could make them money, but more than that, he was a means to achieving their political ends back in New York, namely seeing Governor Benjamin Fletcher kicked out of office and the Earl of Bellamont installed in his place. Now, that was a tall order. Benjamin Fletcher had one very influential friend, in the court of King William, namely William Blaithwaite, the Secretary of War. Bellamont was less influential than William Blaithwaite. If they wanted to get him kicked out of office, they would need some very hard proof. In fact, Bellamont had already made one move against the governor of New York. Earlier that summer, before he met with William Kidd, he had filed a suit against the governor alleging all sorts of electoral malpractice, which may in fact have been true. Regardless, when he met William Kidd, all of that was still going on. What's notable is that none of the piratical accusations that would eventually take Benjamin Fletcher down were involved in that suit. Now, we don't have any hard historical data that 
taking down the governor was their goal in working for Captain Kidd here. You know, no journal entries where they're wringing their hands and twirling their mustaches and saying, oh, we're going to take Fletcher down. There were a lot of journal entries that might suggest it, but they're all written with code names and really obscure references. We can never really be positive exactly what they're talking about. And since... Everything is about to work out in their favor, and since they were already going after Benjamin Fletcher along other roads, one might feel safe to say, yep, that's it, conspiracy at work, I knew it. But even then, it's not this alleged conspiracy that's going to take Benjamin Fletcher down. Really very little of what these two men were doing was going to have any real effect because... In just a few short weeks, news is going to reach England that Henry Every captured one of the richest ships in the world belonging to the Mughal Empire alongside Thomas II and a bunch of other pirates outfitted and commissioned by Governor Benjamin Fletcher. It's possible, I don't think it's the case, but it is possible that these conspirators were merely riding that wave when it came. But again, I don't think so. I think that they were actively working to take down Governor Benjamin Fletcher and Henry Every's actions merely sped up their timetable. This is episode 226, Goods, Treasure, and Other Things. Captain Kidd would have naturally been disappointed when the news came down he wasn't going to get a captaincy in the Royal Navy. But I imagine that he was a bit heartened when Richard Livingston told him that he and the Earl of Belmont had a plan. They were going to get him a commission to hunt down pirates and even get him maybe even build a brand new frigate to go out hunting. Now, there's a lot of psychohistory that goes on during this period in William Kidd's life. By which, I don't mean it was crazy, which... It was, but we're talking about post-facto psychoanalysis here. People trying to figure out why William Kidd is about to do what he's about to do. We don't know why William Kidd did what he did. You know, as difficult a character as Henry Every is to pin down, at least he wrote a letter telling us why he did what he did. William Kidd does give us his version of events after the fact, but... It's pretty hard to trust him in that. There's a version of Captain Kidd that has been passed down by historians that began planning his future piratical endeavors right here. As soon as he got the disappointing news about the captain's job, he began planning for the future. Oh, oh you, won't, you won't give me the job I want. Well, screw you then. I'm going to be a pirate. Now, I don't necessarily hold to that version of Captain Kidd, but it is possible. I think it's more likely that it was merely the beginning of his descent. Now, here in mid-August 1695, William Kidd really didn't have much to do. He couldn't begin working on his voyage until his two benefactors did the work that they needed to do. And here I'm going to indulge in a bit of post-facto psychoanalysis of my own. 
I think that William Kidd very likely felt stuck between a rock and a hard place. He was absolutely aware of all of the political undercurrents between Benjamin Fletcher and Richard Livingston. He knew both of them, worked with both of them. Now, I think he was probably mostly in Benjamin Fletcher's corner here. You know, all of his social advancement was due to, well, his wife, but then, you know, the governor who appointed him to certain positions and invited him to all the best parties and really kind of promoted Captain Kidd. But Livingston had the potential to help William Kidd advance beyond the relatively limited scope of Fletcher's influence. See, Benjamin Fletcher had powerful friends at court, among the most powerful at court, namely William Blaithwaite, the Secretary of War. He and Fletcher were friends, and they'd worked closely together on a lot of issues in their careers. When William when William Kidd petitioned the king and the secretary of war for his captaincy, I think he was probably relying on a bit of the luster from his friend the governor. But that didn't happen. And I don't want to suggest that it's possible that Richard Livingston would have been so duplicitous as to sabotage William Kidd's chances at a captaincy, I don't think he was going to get that anyway. But since William Kidd knew that he wasn't going to get the job, and his friendship with Fletcher seemed to have reached its professional culmination, I wonder if he felt that perhaps Livingston was a better option. And it's not like he didn't understand the possibilities. Back in New York, after William Kidd married his wife Sarah Bradley, he moved into her home, and he sold his old house on Dock Street. Sold it to Richard Livingston, who wasn't going to live there. He had a much finer house, but the real estate was worth the money. And that's really only scratching the surface of their relationship here. Kid knew about Richard Livingston's legally dubious trading activities. Now, it wasn't trading with the Pirates of the Round. He might have been involved in that, but what we know he was involved in is arguably worse. Richard Livingston was trading with the enemy. During the Nine Years' War, he was trading with the French on Saint-Domingue. One of his ships, the Orange, a couple of years earlier, had been forced to put in at Cap Francais allegedly forced by one of Lauro de Graff's pirates. Those vile French boucanniers took all of his cargo by force. He didn't have a choice in the matter, and they sent his ship back to New York with almost nothing to show for it. I mean, dirty pirates, am I right? All they gave him in return for everything in his cargo holds was... Flour and butter and tar and candles and bread and pork that totaled a mere 595 pounds more than the worth of his previous cargo. I tell you, it's downright robbery. The dockmaster there at New York noticed the irregularities in his manifest, looked kind of like he made a pretty decent profit, so the captain of the ship, not Livingston, but one of his employees, was brought up on charges, and had he been convicted, it would have been a black mark against Richard Livingston. 
and they dragged that captain before a magistrate to hear those charges. And the man on the bench was none other than William Kidd. The captain got off scot-free, Livingston received no black mark on his record, and made 595 pounds from this voyage. Kidd was planting seeds by granting these kind of favors. And here in the summer of 1695, it looked like he was about to reap the harvest. I try to imagine the conversation between Richard Livingston and William Kidd here. I picture them walking down a bustling London street, or maybe strolling through a lush park, and Livingston puts his arm around Kidd and tells him something like, Look, Bill, I owe you for your uh, services back in New York. And here's the thing, William Kidd really wanted that Royal Navy gig. Now, he was never going to get it, but a privateering commission was a valuable commodity. They were profitable, and here in 1695, they were really hard to get. That's one of the big reasons piracy was such big business here in 1695. England was at war, and if we were to look at the last two or three wars, they loved to employ privateers, but England had lost two or three pretty big naval battles. They'd lost a lot of ships and a lot of men. They needed everybody they could find for the Royal Navy. Any man who knew his way around a ship was needed. So they curtailed privateering by royal decree. Had William Kidd been willing to accept anything below a captain's uniform, he probably could have gotten that job. But he wasn't, so he didn't. But not to worry, his good friend, his old friend Livingston, was going to help him get one of the very few letters of mark available. But it wasn't only men that were needed for the Navy, the ships were also needed for the Navy. They weren't going to be able to buy him one, and the Antigua just wasn't going to cut it to be a proper pirate hunter so they were going to have to raise the money to build a new vessel. And that was going to be expensive. At least £6,000 just to get started. To put that into perspective, the average salary an American governor could expect was about £600 annually. At least that's the salary that Lord Bellamont could expect from each of his three governorships. He needed he said, at least 1,800 pounds a year to get out of debt. And to put that into perspective, that 600-pound salary was only $4 more than Livingston earned from the sale of his stolen cargo. All of which is to say Livingston made off like a bandit when he was robbed, and 6,000 pounds was a lot of money. Not to worry, though. Bellamont was on top of the situation. He, with his influence, was gathering investors to buy in on the voyage. And he did have some interested parties. See, Lord Bellamont was politically on the outs in London. As they say, he was out of favor at court. But that wasn't always the case. Only a couple of years earlier, he'd been in the innermost inner circle. He had a seat on the Lords of Trade. He served as steward of then Princess Mary's household, that is, now Queen Mary. 
Most notably, though, he had a large and powerful platform among the Whigs in the House of Lords. Now, you may remember, early in the reigns of King William and Queen Mary, they tried to walk a middle path politically, to not favor the platform of either the Whigs or the Tories. As such an inner circle member of their household, he was expected to follow their lead in that, but he was a Whig, and he very much upset the political apple cart. He went after one of the leaders of the Tories and tore him down, but that upset a lot of people, and he was shunned from court. He tried to buy his way back in, and borrowed a ton of money to do so, but even then he failed to make it back into favor. Now, his appointment to the governorship of Massachusetts was a big opportunity, and a favor done by the king but it was still an appointment to a colonial office halfway around the globe, way outside the Beltway of London. If he were ever to find his way back into court favor, he was going to have to make some big moves. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So the Earl decided to cash in some of the last remaining favors he had among the big names at court, and these were some of the biggest. He brought in four big investors into this privateering opportunity. The first was Admiral Edward Russell. Now, Russell was one of the first Navy men to turn his coat in favor of the Prince of Orange. Here in 1695, Edward Russell was the first Lord of the Admiralty. Exactly the kind of man you want to go in on a voyage like this. Then there was Lord John Summers, who was the Lord Chancellor of the House of Lords, also no slouch. Summers was an interesting character. He was a close associate of Sir Isaac Newton, well as close as anyone could be said to be close to Isaac Newton. But he worked very closely with the Royal Academy. He even had a hand in getting William Dampier's book published. Third, we find the Earl of Romney, a man named Henry Sidney. Now, previously, during the reign of Charles II, Henry Sidney had been one of the more prominent men at court. But that all kind of fell apart, see... Henry Sidney was very good-looking and very charming, 
and he slept with James Stewart's beautiful and much younger second wife, the Duchess of York and future Queen of England, Mary of Modena. As you might imagine, the Stuarts hated him, and King William really had a soft spot for him. Finally, though, there was the big name. The second most powerful man at court after King William, arguably the third most powerful after the king and queen. I'm talking about Charles Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury, the Secretary of State under the king and queen. His power and influence in England at this time really could not be overstated. He beat out everyone except the monarchs, even John Churchill, for now. Charles Talbot was basically a stand-in for the king while the king was away, and the king was away a lot. He worked closely in concert with Queen Mary on all affairs of state. You couldn't ask, aside from the king and queen, for a bigger patron. In The Pirate Hunter, Richard Zacks writes, quote, In sum, these were four unspeakably important men, operating at the heart of the English Empire, well beloved by the king himself, people whom one didn't muck with lightly. End quote. More to the point, what reason did these powerful, influential men of court have to get involved with a super-secret plot to bring down some colonial governor, someone who was close with the Secretary of War? I mean, why bother with a mission like that? How would it benefit them? And the truth is, it wouldn't. They had no good reason to get involved, but Bellamont knew how to bring them in. The answer is simple. No esoteric politics or conspiracy theories, just lots and lots of money. And this is where the legally questionable conspiracy turns into a blatantly illegal operation involving some of the most important men in the country. We all know how legal privateering is supposed to work, right? A privateer gets a commission, they go out hunting, and they bring back profits from enemy shipping. They give a cut to the governor, a cut to the king, and then they divvy up the rest among the crew. Usually, privateers followed buccaneer rules. No prey, no pay, and equal shares for everyone on the crew. But this commission, still theoretical at this point, was for pirate hunting, not enemy wartime privateering. The rules were different here, because the cargo didn't belong to enemy combatants, it belonged to innocent merchants, or the East India Company, or another East India Company, or, most dangerously of all, it might be cargo that belonged to a powerful, antagonistic, potential enemy. You know, say... Hypothetically speaking, for example here, that some pirate were to steal hundreds of thousands of pounds from a powerful Muslim empire that was not currently at war with England, but could at any moment decide to side with France and begin attacking England. You would very much want to return that stolen cargo and their silver and gold, all of it to its rightful owners to avoid the potential diplomatic and military fallout. A pirate hunter was expected to turn all of their reclaimed pirated cargo over to the Admiralty. 
officially. No one really expected the hunters to return everything. I mean, they would absolutely dip into the food and the rum. Who wouldn't, right? And if a little of the coins stuck to their pockets, well, I mean, if someone returns a wallet to you, do you really expect all the cash to be in there? They knew that the pirate hunters were going to make a bit of a profit. But there were really two tiers of goods that a pirate hunter might reclaim. First, there was that which belongs to important people, and then there's that which did not. The East India Company, the Mughal Empire, uh, Spain, I guess, you know, basically anyone you were friendly with or who could pose a threat, those were important people. On the other hand, you've got, obviously, enemy combatants, but anybody who really wouldn't be able to do anything about it, small-time merchants indigenous peoples, no one's really going to notice or care if you don't return their goods. For that first class, for the important people, once the Admiralty had their cargo in hand, they would give it back to the rightful owners to avoid those diplomatic kerfuffles. In theory, at least, that's how it was supposed to work, but that's not what was going to happen here. Richard Zacks writes in the Pirate Hunter quote, what was unusual about this contract was Clause 2. The Earl agreed to procure a grant from the King for all merchandises, goods, treasure, and other things, as shall be taken from the said pirates. Also, Clause 10 stated that while enemy prize ships should go through Admiralty Court, the pirate goods should be delivered directly to Lord Bellamont and Boston, with no account to be given to the Crown. This is the start of the shenanigans. Lord Bellamont and his lordly backers planned on getting a grant from the king to claim the pirated goods, no questions asked, and divide them up in a way that would make it almost impossible for the original owners to reclaim their cargo. What if the pirate goods were stolen hours earlier from an East India Company ship or from the Grand Mughal? This was a nicety the lords preferred to overlook. They wanted a glorious license to steal from thieves. Now, I don't think they knew that the pirates in question were going to steal from the Grand Mughal, but the pirates in question were going to steal from the Grand Mughal. This, though, was a plan to keep all of the prize money, and to do so technically against the law with royal backing. These powerful lords that got involved did not do so out of patriotism, though they have occasionally been characterized as such. They got involved because, with just one or two big prizes under Captain Kidd's belt, perhaps a raid on the trading post at St. Mary's, these men could expect a major return on their investment. And thanks to another of the clauses within that contract, they were basically free from risk. Each of the four lords that Bellamont brought in were going to put up one-fifth of the capital for the ship and the voyage. Bellamont himself wasn't going to invest anything. He was way too deep in debt. The final fifth of the voyage was going to be put up half by William Kidd and half by Livingston. But in order to get this very precious privateering commission... William Kidd had to sign a £20,000 performance bond. 
That means that he was required to earn 20,000 pounds for his investors or he was going to get arrested. He was going to get thrown into a debtor's prison and left there to rot. And 20,000 pounds was a lot of money in 1695. Now, the positive aspect of his mission was pretty good. If he got the money, William Kidd was going to get to keep the ship that they built for him, add that to the Antigua and whatever profits he earned from his mission, William Kidd would be set up to begin a real merchant fleet in New York. And at first, William Kidd, once he reviewed the terms of this contract, said no. He was not going to get involved in something like this. It was, it was absolutely mad to think he would. Livingston had to do some difficult negotiating to get him to rethink his negative response. So he hired a chair, one of those palanquins that important and rich men would buy to get carried around from place to place. He hired one of those so that he and Kid could go visit each of the four investors. They could reassure him that they were respectable men worthy of doing business with and that should William Kidd come through on his end of the deal, he would be set up for life. Over the next couple of weeks, Livingston and Kidd went to each of their estates, and Livingston met with those important men, but William Kidd was not allowed in their presence. Sometimes they would be behind a divider, you know, a screen. Sometimes they would be in another room, but Kidd never got to stand there and speak to them. William Kidd himself said, quote, For my satisfaction that these great men were concerned in the expedition, he discoursed them, but would not suffer me to see or speak with any of them. End quote. And I wonder here, was Livingston actually talking to these important lords? Because at least Russell, the admiral, was not in London at the time. I think it's likely he was speaking to an agent, pretending to be them, which is why he was not allowed to see them in the first place. If we were to indulge in a bit of that uh, psychoanalytical history, I think it's possible that it's here. Feeling deeply insulted by this kind of treatment, Kidd began to plot nefarious deeds in his future. I don't think he wanted to agree to this mission because it was a bad mission, but he realized with these condescending noblemen that if they gave him a ship, he might be able to turn that into something worth his time. But here, Richard Zacks disagrees. He says, quote, So why did Kidd sign? The simplest explanation, he had absolutely no intention of failing to fulfill his mission. William Kidd agreed to these, frankly, atrocious terms. He was going to get his ship, he was going to get his commission, and he was going to hunt pirates. But at some point along his voyage, something was going to go terribly, terribly wrong. Next time we're going to look at the contract that William Kidd signed, less the financial details and more the pirates that he was expected to hunt, and we're going to follow him as he prepares his voyage and oversees the construction of his new ship, one of the most famous pirate ships of all time, the Adventure Galley.
I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. All of you who have left ratings or reviews for the show, you all help get it noticed. I couldn't do it without you. And before we leave today, I can't help but notice that it's about that time to remind you to pick up a copy of Washington's War, 1779, the audiobook read by me, now available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, why not do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight